my mic working, Tim? See? Ah, there we go. Thank you. All right. Well, today being Father's Day, I want to start out with a couple dad jokes. Which days are the strongest? Saturday and Sunday. The rest are just weekdays. What's the difference between a well-dressed man on a unicycle and a poorly-dressed man on a bicycle? Attire. What do you call a beehive without an exit? Unbelievable. All right, I'll stop there. <laughs> so today we begin um, a 19-week sermon series on the life of Isaac and Jacob. I have entitled this sermon series Patriarchs and Promises, and this is actually part two. We began with Abraham last summer, and so we're continuing on. And just as a, a note, I want to review that this is a different style of preaching when we go through series like this. It focuses chiefly on one passage, using the other passages as support passages to expose and sometimes fulfill the chief passage. Um, but that's different than lectionary preaching, which is more theme-based. So lectionary, all, all three or four passages kind of carry a theme. This is a little bit different. It's focusing on the main passage. Some of you might be familiar with this um, in other traditions. Some people think this is un-Anglican, and I assure you it is not. Anglicans are not chained to the lectionary, as some, actually, as some believe. Uh, we go back to men such as John Donne and Charles Simeon, who preached through books, much to the edification of their congregations. And I hope this will be to your edification as well. So for the next 19 weeks, it's really important that you bring your Bibles. It's always important that you bring your Bible. But bring your Bibles. I won't shame you this time, but I might later. So, today we start with our first sermon series, and we look at Exodus 25. And as we look, take notes, let this speak to you. In places, let it rebuke you, let it admonish you, let it encourage you, and let God's Word grow deeply in your hearts. So, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, speaking forth from the burning bush, God introduces himself as, quote, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 32, when speaking to the Sadducees about the general resurrection, our Lord Jesus reminds them that this revelation to Moses of this revelation to Moses in, in Exodus 3, rather, the burning bush, when Jesus says, Have you not read what is said by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. To go without saying, but I hope that it's clear, that Jesus sees the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the starting point 
for God's chosen people. That this is really important to him, and therefore it's important to us as Christians too. That this is our story, not the story just of the Jews. In fact, God has created us as a people through that chosen line by faith. And you, as a daughter or son of Christ, are adopted into that line. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful heritage. So God chose the patriarch Abraham and his line to bring forth Christ to us so that we could be adopted into that line as a people of faith. And Christian fathers are to be a model of this faith in their home. Christian fathers are to be a model of this faith in their home. Particularly important here on Father's Day. In Romans chapter 11, St. Paul talks about how the Gentiles are grafted into Israel. Romans 11.18 we read, and he's instructing the Christians in Rome here, Do not be arrogant towards the branches, that is the Jews. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. So sometimes you'll run into Christians who dismiss the Old Testament as Old Covenant and not mattering. Has anyone ever run into that? It's usually more in, con- it's usually more in casual conversation than in formal teaching. But no real Christian denomination believes that. It's a heresy called Marcionism. So open to Genesis 25, and let's start hearing our story. These are the generations we begin. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. God's faithfulness here in this passage is in this line, in this covenant. The technical scholastic term for this is toldot, toldot. And Genesis is broken up into ten of these, and so we're starting the second half of Genesis here with this introduction. Whenever you see these are the generations of Isaac or these are the generations of somebody, that's that line of demarcation into the next section of the book. And God's showing his faithfulness to Abraham, to Abraham, to the promise and the covenant he gave Abraham. When we read this, that God's promise is continuing from one generation to another. But did you notice, not everything is smooth here. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. Now, it's true that Isaac lives like to 180 years, so this is a little different than our lifespans. And nevertheless, notice that for some 20 years, they struggle with infertility. Did you catch that? Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, why is this important? Well, we're told that Rebekah's barren, 
And this barrenness has nothing to do with sin or anything like that, but rather it's to bring forth God's glory. If you look there further on in the passage, in Genesis 25, verse 26, the end of the passage, the end of that verse, rather, verse 26, you see that after his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, but this is the important point, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. He was 60 years old. So this is, this is true, a true testing of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage in fertility, in barrenness. When we look at uh, the actual Hebrew behind this word of Abraham praying for Rebekah back in verse 21, it's a particular word used. It's weyatar, weyatar, which means to pray, yes, but it means more to entreat or to beseech, to implore or to beg. In fact, scholar Alan Ross notes that the Hebrew original uh, word for this is used twice in this passage. So if we were to read it literally, Isaac entreated the Lord and the Lord was entreated. Or Isaac begged the Lord on Rebekah's half and the Lord was begged or beseeched. Now Isaac's not a perfect father as we'll later see. But it serves as a godly example here that he prays unceasingly for his wife and for this child. Abraham, like Abraham, Isaac believes in God's promise. But unlike Abraham, Isaac does not, have his, does not ask his wife or listen to his wife and sleep with one of her maidservants. Do you see that? Remember last year, Abraham decided to take matters into his own hands and decided with Sarah to sleep with his maidservant. Well, that doesn't happen here. We don't get any more insight into that, but it certainly is important. And I think the answer here is as to why God makes them wait 20 years is that God is demonstrating beyond any doubt, beyond any doubt, that He alone is the one who's going to bring the completion of His promise, that His offspring are going to go on. You see, Isaac and Rebecca can't take any credit for this. This is a miraculous conception, a miraculous conception that God brings about. And it's also interesting, just if you're looking at these things, that Isaac and Rebecca wait five years less than Abraham and Sarah. I'm not sure what that says, but they wait five years less than Abraham and Sarah. We can only imagine what joy Isaac and Rebecca must have shared at the news of the conception of a child. And soon they hear that it's actually not one child, but two fraternal twins. They'll find out upon birth that it's, Isaac, that it's Esau and Jacob. But there's something unusual about these two children wrestling in the womb. And that is that they unceasingly are wrestling in the womb. In fact, in a time long before ultrasounds or any kind of medical insight, you can understand why Rebecca is wondering, what is going on? What is going on? 
Look at Genesis chapter 25, this time verses 22 through 23. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Rebecca's faith here is remarkable also, in that she goes to the Lord to inquire, What's going on? What's going on? As a new mom, that must have scared her, and yet she takes that question to God, and God's answer to her is an oracle or a prophecy. Look at what the Lord says. Verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. She gets an an explanation as to what's going on, but she gets a lot more than she bargains for, I think. She gets this explanation and this prophecy about her twins, her fraternal twin sons. Let's look at it together really quickly. First of all, she gets confirmation that this pregnancy is divinely appointed. Now, all pregnancies are gifts from God. All life is a gift from God. But this is particularly so in that it's appointed. First of all, she sees the fact that her two sons are going to be patriarchs of not one, but two nations. Second of all, these two peoples shall be divided. Third of all, the one shall be stronger than the other. And fourth of all, the older shall serve the younger. Well, the first and second prophecy are tied together, aren't they? It's a continuation of God's fulfillment of this promise to Abraham, back from Genesis 11, that there will be nations that come forth from him and from Isaac. And so we see that once again reiterated. That's important. But Jacob's sons are going to be the patriarchs that are the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And Esau's sons are going to be the Edomites. The Edomites. So whenever you run across the Edomites later in Scripture, as we do often, these are the sons of Esau. The third prophecy is intriguing as to who is stronger. Because as we go through the life of Jacob and Esau, I would say... Um, That's something to carry with you through this sermon series and ask, okay, who is the stronger man, in fact? And then, of course, we know that Jacob's offspring becomes the stronger in the Lord Jesus Christ, in that line. The third prophecy is intriguing, however, because it looks not just at physical strength, but character and peoples. But the fourth prophecy is the most curious of all particularly in the culture of that day. The oldest, the oldest son in that day was the head of the family. But here we see that God has chosen the younger son, who we find out is Jacob. Look at verse 24 of chapter 25. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. 
and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. From the very beginning, God's prophecy is fulfilled as Esau and Jacob wrestle even to the point of being born. In the very act of being born, Jacob is grabbing the heel of Esau. They're jockeying for position. There's other interesting things in this birth, too. For the two sons couldn't be more different in appearance, right? Esau means hairy. Edom means red. And Jacob means heel in Hebrew. But it also means God will protect your heel. If we were to put this in modern English, it's like saying, God's got your back. God's got your back. God will protect your heel. Esau is a man ruled by his passions, as we'll see today. Whereas Jacob is quiet, is how it's usually translated. And actually our prayer book uses the word quiet in the same word in the opening collect today. Let us be quiet and confident. As we listen to the story, we're tempted to see Jacob as the good guy and Esau as the bad guy. But as a matter of fact, they're both sinful bad guys, but in different ways. One just happens to be chosen to be the line from which Jesus comes. And the story of Esau and Jacob is one of conflict and ultimately one of unnecessary strife. Scripture places this story of Esau exchanging his birthright for a bowl of stew of all things to illustrate that. So look with me at Genesis 25, 29-34, the second part of the passage. It's short, so let's just read it. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What's going on here? Well, a lot of things. We see the two characters, right? We see the quiet character versus the passionate character. We see two men with different values, too. The passage illustrates greatly that sinful desires and propensities, as well as sins of the will draw a man away from God. You see, Esau is a man of desire. He's a wild man. A man of the field, verse 27 says. And Esau is a short-sighted thinker. A man of passion. He gives little thought to God. So he's a profane man. Commenting on the Hebrew language here, again, Alan Ross looks and he says that these verbs used to describe Esau are short and abrupt. And that doesn't necessarily come through to the English. For example, when we read, let me eat some of that red stew in English, the Hebrew equivalent is, feed me. Feed me. Esau feed, says, feed me. Eating and drinking in the English is translated more literally from the Hebrew, so he crammed his face and gulped the stew down. 
So do you see the difference, right? Sometimes it just doesn't quite come through in our translations. Esau is this emotional, irrational creature. And Scripture is playing up the fact that he's more like an animal than he is like a man. Conversely, Jacob is a quiet man, according to verse 27. He did a lot of thinking. The Hebrew word here is tam, and it coincidentally means the same, or tame rather, I mispronounced it. Coincidentally, it means the same thing in English as it does in Hebrew, right? When we talk about someone who's tame, right? It means quiet, reflective, civilized, even-tempered, well-measured, dignified. And to quote Rowan Atkinson's character in the 1980s BBC show Black Adder, has anyone ever seen Black Adder? It's one of my favorites. It might be an Anglophile thing. But he's got a cunning plan. He's got a cunning plan. But whereas Black Adder's plans always blow up in his face, Jacob's actually works perfectly. And Jacob effectively purchases Esau's birthright for a bowl of stew. And crummy lentil stew at that. Not even meat. Esau, however, interestingly, in this passage, takes all the blame. Look at the end of verse 34. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The fault here in Scripture is not laid on Jacob for being deceptive, but on Esau. And this incident forever, in some ways, defines and tarnishes Esau's reputation for millennia. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, this incident is used as a warning to Christians. In Hebrews 12:16, the writer of Hebrews says, See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. That man is a fool, according to Hebrews. Commenting on this passage, Ephraim the Syrian, a theologian from the early 4th century, writes, Esau did not sell his birthright because he was hungry, but rather since it had no value to him. He sold it for nothing as if it were nothing. What's Ephraim saying? He's saying, look, it's not just Esau's gluttony that gets him to change his birthright over. It's that he didn't value what he had. He didn't value the spiritual blessing that was his by birth. For all his foibles and cunning, we're going to see that Jacob at least values the promises of God. As St. Chrysostom writes, commenting on this, let us learn the lesson to never neglect the gifts from God or forfeit important things for worthless trifles. It's a great succinct thing to carry with you. Never neglect the gifts of God or forfeit them for worthless trifles. Every time we choose to sin, that's what we do. Do you know that? It's because we think that the thing in front of us that's good is somehow better than the thing that God has planned for us. We're exchanging something gifted for something worthless. And we always find that out eventually. It's a main theme, though, going through Genesis 25. And it's also a main theme in our Gospel passage in Luke. So switch with me really quickly to the Luke passage. And look at the end of it. It's on page 4 in your bulletin. 
particularly verse 23 and 24. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Friends, grab on to the rich gifts from God rather than the worthless trifles. In denying yourself, that's what you're doing. You're denying yourself for the sake of something more valuable. You see, God calls us who would truly follow him to deny ourselves and to choose what he knows is better for us, an eternity with him. Recognizing the value of that eternity, eternity is our struggle. Why would we deny ourselves something that's in front of us that seems so good? Because God knows better. Esau, interestingly, does not lose his salvation. Contrary to what some people teach, he's not hated by God. That's not what Romans 9 actually means. We'll talk about that later. And he's not condemned. But he does lose his position in the line of Jesus Christ. The sins of the father and the mother, however, are also the second point of this passage. In today's epistle, we read what? What? In Ephesians. Husbands are to love and cherish their wives as their own bodies. Wives are to respect their husbands. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Fathers are not to provoke children to anger, but to bring them up in discipline and instruction in the Lord. You may have noticed that I glossed over a part of today's passage. Did you notice that in Genesis? What was it? Anybody catch it? The interaction of Isaac and Rebekah with their sons, which is tragic and sinful. Look at verse 27 of the Genesis passage. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. As we're going to see play out in the rest of this series, this favoritism, this pitting of one son against the other, is exactly the opposite of what Ephesians tells us to do as followers of God with our children. To play favorites, to set one against the other, to provoke our children, as St. Paul admonishes us not to do. We see great division and dysfunction with Isaac and Rebekah because of their neglect of this that pays huge dividends of strife, not only for the rest of their lives, but for the rest of their sons' lives. It's not practiced well at all. Later on in Genesis, we'll see God condemns this too. So I argue that this is the main secondary lesson from the passage to be taken, especially on this Father's Day, that this father and mother don't urge their children to honor God and to seek their place in his plan, but rather to compete against one another in an ungodly way. Part of denying ourselves, friends, and taking up our crosses is to embrace 
the responsibilities and roles of Christian fathers, mothers, and children. And so this is a message to all ages. It's a good thing to be reminded of, especially on this secular holiday, that we live in a society that's increasingly confused about gender and sex and focused on individual rights completely rather than mutual duties that accompany relationship. But God's, God's priorities are the other way around. That our individual rights are part of our duties and our relationships. That we're to be knit together as families to help one another be more Christ-like. And so a practical application of today's lesson is this, that we're to value eternal truths over the world's frivolities, trifles, and soft-minded thinking. Secondly, husbands, I want to call on you to be like Jacob, or Isaac rather, be like Isaac in praying for your wives earnestly. That's an important gift, to pray for, to love, and to cherish your wife. Wives, I'm calling upon you. Respect your husbands, as Scripture tells us. Give them the support that they need to lead you and your family spiritually. Bolster them in their faith where they're weak, instead of chipping away at them, as sometimes happens. Young ones, children of all ages, whether you're teenagers or down to whether you can barely understand me, obey your parents. Honor your parents. Because this is who God has given to you so that you can learn about God. Your parents aren't perfect, but they're to be an image of God to you to help you learn to understand and obey. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Be their instructor. Don't make them defiant. Most importantly, according to Ephesians, your attitude towards God is going to reflect most on your children. You know, statistics bear this out, that for whatever reason, a mother's attitude towards going to church or towards spiritual devotion is not nearly as effective as a father's attitude on how their children, um, how their children treat the church or love the Lord. Why is that? I don't know. But it is in alignment with Scripture here. So watch out for how you treat going to church on Sunday morning. If your attitude is bad, don't be surprised if your children's attitude is bad. If you're groaning about it, if you're lamenting going, if you're really dragging your feet, you're going to see that bitter fruit in your children. And friends, I've talked to some older people, and that is bitter fruit especially in old age. On this Father's Day, let's all recognize the great responsibility that we hold. God has knit us together in families. God redeems Isaac's family, but we'll see that there's a whole lot of heartbreak and unnecessary, unnecessary strife because of their sins. So friends, no matter what your position is, married or single, fathers or mothers or children. Let us help one another to deny ourselves the trifles of this world and to love the truly valuable things in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.